Um, I am uh, this coming October, 30 years married. Yes, I got married. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, uh, and uh, uh, many stories to tell. I won't give you all of them, um, but uh, October 17th, 1981. Um, for those of you that saw the unbelievably infamous movie called Saturday Night Fever, Tony Manero, played by John Travolta, that's how I looked on my wedding day. I was a disco kind of a guy. I had that kind of suit. For those of you that are older, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, I had the big bouffetta hair. Um, I looked the part. We went to Toronto, Canada for our honeymoon because we didn't have any money. We uh, stayed for three days there, and we saw a phenomenal movie there that I would recommend to all of you called Escape from New York. Um, It's a phenomenal, no, it's really not phenomenal at all. It's a horrible movie. And there was another movie we saw. We saw Arthur, a movie called Arthur. All this is dating you, isn't it? None of this, it, it doesn't make sense to any of you. We get back from the honeymoon, true story. And uh, we're unpacking our gifts from the wedding. And uh, I decide to do something that every guy, for some reason, every guy has this streak in him that they love to play practical jokes and just kind of mess around all the time. So I thought, oh, I'm going to play a practical joke on my wife. So we get back, we're opening up the gifts. I look at her, and I say with complete and utter seriousness, you have no idea who I am. She looks at me, and she goes, what? I said, you have no idea who you've married. And I just saw one girl in the audience go, Oh, my gosh. That's what she did. She goes, oh, my gosh. And she begins to kind of back away from from me. And I decide, like every stupid 21-year-old, yeah, I was married at 21. She was 18. I decide to keep up with the joke. And I want you to know, men, if you're not married or married, there's certain things that you will do in your marriage that you will pay for forever in your life. I have paid for this dearly for 30 years, and I will pay for it for the rest of my life. And I looked at her, and I went to step up towards the kitchen. And there, I wasn't going to do this, but there was a steak knives in the kitchen in this. And, I was, and she saw me walking towards this. I wasn't going to take it that far, and she runs to the bathroom. And shuts the door. When she or shut the door, she flipped on the two switches, and the both switches that came on were the fan and the light. And I went to the door, and I'm just going like this, you know. No, I'm just kidding. But all she could see was like the movie Psycho. She heard the fan. All she was, you know, like this. It was horrible. We have arrived at a unique place in the study of 1 Corinthians, and the unique place that we've arrived at is this time where Paul now is beginning to address these people about a lot of different issues that they're facing. And by the way, 
a lot of the issues that Paul is addressing with them come from the fact that they had written him letters and said, hey, what about these things? These are the things that are going on here in Corinth. And what about, what does God say about this stuff? What does God say about singleness? What does he say about divorce? What does he say about marriage? What does, what does, it, what does, uh, what does sex mean in marriage? All kinds of these issues. We've dealt with some of them previously, this, this singleness issue, but today we're going to talk about marriage. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7. Is it all right? Lower? How about there? Lower? There? Okay. All right, stay with me on this. This is not by any means um, a complete and exhaustive treatise on uh, marriage as far as Pauline theology goes and Pauline doctrine. He has much to say about marriage. The real key uh, verse and chapter that I would take all of you to would be Ephesians 5. We're not going to go through that today. We're going to stay in our our 1 Corinthians series here. And I want you to um, start, just follow along with me where it says there, now for the matters you wrote, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, now for the matters you wrote about, See, they're asking him these questions. It is good for a man not to marry, and he says, but since there's so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse 4, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband and no other ancient literature or literature at this time had ever made that kind of a claim that Paul claims right there, that mar- the marital relationship obviously means more than just a piece of paper. Paul's beginning to unfold kind of a theology here, a real understanding of this is a very, very intimate partnership between two people. Let's see it again. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. And in the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may be devoted to your, uh, devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Stop. The purpose of uh, marriage... It's very beautiful because in its biblical sense, it's meant to reflect the relationship that Christ has with his church. It's a symbol of the relationship, this relationship that I have with my wife and I. It's a symbol. It's a sign of the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, the reflection that I have, my wife and I, Shelly and I have, is a is an imperfect reflection. It's an imperfect symbol, but it is that. Paul here is trying to give us this beautiful picture of a husband and wife coming together, this beautiful picture of this partnership, this beautiful picture of oneness, oneness, oneness that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5. And he says in Ephesians 5, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, you've all heard this, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. The two shall become one flesh. 
God loves the fact that he has given sex to us in the context of marriage relationship and sexual intercourse is a beautiful part of that relationship, but guess what sexual intercourse is? Sexual intercourse is actually a celebration of two people that are one. My wife's body is now no longer hers, it's mine. My body is no longer mine, but hers. That's because this concept of oneness has now, what? interrupted my life, this concept of these two people coming together, two worlds, and now coming together as one. And if you want to really look at the concept of oneness, it's, uh, it's beautiful. It's talked a lot about in, in Ephesians 4, where Paul talks about one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, and then in this, in this case, one flesh. This, this kind of this understanding of one flesh, it's this dynamic force this miraculous spiritual, social, and physical reality, oneness, this idea of two people coming together and being one, that's God's reality for us. And by the way, that's God's reality for us as church. Read John 17, or yeah, John 17. God's picture. Now, I want to caution you here, and I want to say something to you, because in a, few, in a, in a minute, I'm going to end this by just giving you what I feel is the bi- biggest marriage secret of all in a few minutes, but I want you to hear this. When Paul here is talking about this concept of a wife's body being her husband's and likewise, he's trying to give us this picture of oneness. And I really need you to, if you want to spend some time this week, go to Ephesians 5 and read about this picture that God has for us as being one. It talks about husband and wife roles, and we're going to get to that a little bit next week. This is not, though, this picture here, I want to spend some time on it. This is not the coming together of two worlds. It is the absolute destruction of two worlds, only to build one world. No one acts independently. It is the complete abandonment of two worlds in order that one world would be formed. Do you live like that in your marriages, young men? Young ladies? Older ladies, older men like me? There's many marriages that I see, it seems like, on a monthly basis here at Midtown, and one of the things that I see right off the bat with every one of them is the couple, or each of them, are doing their own thing. They don't understand the biblical picture, the reality that God's outlined for them of oneness. Maybe they've grown up in a home where they had to achieve or they had to be smart or they had to work hard or whatever the case may be. But they come in, I talk with them, and I feel like they're both in two separate worlds. And God's, God's what should I say, his reality here, he's trying to give us a, new, a different one, a kind of a new vision, a new reality to understand our lives. This is extremely difficult for us, by the way, because most of us in this room are very fascinated with ourselves, including me. We are very fascinated with our careers, and many of us are very fascinated with our children more than we're fascinated with our husband. 
And many husbands are far more fascinated with their career than they are, ever will be with their wife. One person has said this, our idols become the means by which we forget who we truly are and where we truly come from. They numb us. Like Hansel and Gretel, we're following a, a, a sugared path to destruction. It is extremely difficult for us. Many of the things that we want in our lives are very opposed to this oneness that Paul talks about, this beautiful relationship that he outlines here in 1 Corinthians 7. Are you kidding me? We want power. We want control. We want recognition. We want to be better. We want to win. It's amazing how many couples I talk to that just the nature of competition has absolutely killed the idea of oneness in their marriage. They're so concerned about parity and comparing and comp competing with one another that they don't even want to have a dialogue on what it would mean for us to be one with each other. A lot of that problem with competition, by the way, comes from the fact that there's a lot of role confusion in the home about who we are and what God's asked us to be. Are you, is, is it just one big competitive match with your wife or with your husband? In James, it says, what is, the, what is the thing that's causing all the fights and problems amongst you? Is it not the very evil desires that are going on inside of our hearts? What are those desires? Those desires are for pride. Those desires are for winning. The enemy uses these evil, evil desires to divide and to sever and to cut anything that looks like a union. This is one of the very also big issues of what the enemy has been successful at doing, seems like, within the church. When we create a church where everybody's kind of at each other's throats and we're critical of one another, what the enemy wants in the church, because the God has dream for that, his reality for that is one body, and God's reality and dream for our marriages is to be one, is to, the intention there is to sever and to cut and to create space. She doesn't understand me, she never will, so I'm done. He doesn't understand me, he never will, so I'm done. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do the least I can to get by. We can't talk about it, so let's just forget it. Will kind of economically coexist. These are people that are believers, by the way. Is your marriage in trouble? Gentlemen, is your marriage in trouble? Ask your wife what trouble would mean. Some of you need to go home today and ask your wife this question. Do you feel more like a mother or a wife? That'll be an interesting conversation. 
I talked to a couple of uh, folks uh, last week, and I told them to do this. Hey, guys, I challenge you. I challenge every single one of you fellows to do this and, and our wives to do this. Go home today and look at your wife and say, what, what do you want me to stop? What do you want me to start? And what do you want me to continue? <laughs> and w- wives, do that for your husbands, too. And, and, do, and, and do this for each other. When they say anything, don't do this. What are you talking about? Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a romantic ninja. I don't, I'm not romantic? Did you not see the flowers, the petals on the bed last week? It was thousands of them. No, honey, that was in your dreams that you did that. No, no, seriously, go home and listen. Do something that we don't normally do, guys. Listen to your wife when she looks at you and says, this is something I'd like you to stop. Don't, don't defend it. Don't put your hands up. Just listen. What do you want me to stop? What does he want me to start? Listen. You know what, you're gonna, you, know what you do when you listen? We hear each other. We start to close the space. We start to close the space that's so severed. See, that's why we listen to each other is because we want to close the space. We want to fight. Follow this now. We want to fight for our oneness. For those of you that aren't married, you need to understand that one of the things that we're called to do in community is to fight for our oneness in community. What would that look like? Larry Crabb says that all of our relational problems spring from one place. It's the foul well of selfishness. More than anything, what gets in the way of getting along is self-centeredness that seems reasonable. Poor communication, temper problems, unhealthy responses to dysfunctional family backgrounds and codependent relationships. Everything flows out of the cesspool of self-centeredness. I would have to confess that that would be very true of my life. I want, to tell, I want to talk to you about something real quick that I've um, been experiencing and I've been seeing that I think is a very important thing that's really tied into this beautiful picture that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians about oneness. When we think about the idea that God is the author and the perfecter of our faith, did you know that God in a continual way in our lives brings birth and death to things. He's sovereign. He's the storyteller. He's the author. He starts things. He helps things along. And he finishes things. A young lady by the name of Elizabeth Keebler Ross developed a well-known theory that some of you know about. And it's the theory of the emotional stages that we experience at the loss of a loved one. And initially, she says, the first stage, there is this, what she calls a denial stage. Denial is this sense of shock and numbness at at this loss. This can't be true. He can't be dead. She can't be dead. This is all a mistake. After this first phase, there there comes in the second, there comes anger. And usually the anger goes like this, God, why did you do this? 
this person was too young to die or whatever the case may be. The anger stage is at the point where many people are wounded, by the way. I've experienced this personally, these steps in my life. I've lost both of my parents. After anger comes acceptance, and finally after acceptance comes what she calls adaptation and healing The bottom line would be is that the end result is a person who has kind of faced their reality and then emerged somewhat stronger according to her psychological definitions. I think there's some truth in this for us. I believe that this path that she's talking about is common to all sorts of death. It could be the death of a dream. It could be the death of a relationship. It could be the death of a job. And some of us here, husbands and wives, I'm speaking to you this morning on this. Some of you, and all of us really this applies to, are still holding on to the dream you have for your perfect husband. Your perfect wife. Your perfect life together. And you've been shattered by the reality of life truly together. And here's what I would tell you. Mourn it. Feel it, deny it, get angry about it. But don't get stuck at stage one and stage two, where many of us are. We're in denial. This possibly couldn't happen to me, and I'm going to be angry about, the, uh, about it. And my anger is going to be the thing that's going to define me. And ask the Lord, Jesus, to be your healer and to bring you through it. Many of you young ladies, let me talk to you for a minute. Many of you young ladies who are married are in deep mourning about something. You know what you're in deep mourning about? You're in deep mourning about the complete loss of your life before you were married. Now that you become married and have kids, your life is garbage. You hate it. And your husband has the gift of being fairly obtuse to your mourning. He doesn't understand it. And here's what I would tell you, young ladies. It's okay to mourn that. But don't stay in stage two. Don't stay angry. Jesus is your healer. Do you believe, young lady, young man, do you believe that God's sovereign? Do you trust him with your life? Do you believe the version he's telling you, he's telling? Do you believe in right now in the chapter of your life that possibly he's trying to write a sad chapter? Do you believe that? A little boy asked his daddy. He said, Dad, why does it get dark? And the father answered, well, because the sun goes down. Where does the sun go, Daddy? The earth is round and the sun goes to the other side of the earth. Why does it do that? 
Well, if the sun shone all the time, we would get too hot and burn up, Dad responded. Why don't we burn up when it's light? Well, because we're far enough away from the sun. Daddy, the son asked, why don't you know why it gets dark? <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me just help you because this has been so good, true in my life. And please hear this. At some point, at some point, I have to give the people around me a great gift. And the gift is this that I begin to accept God's version of the story for my life. Did you hear what I just said? That I begin to accept God's version of the story for my life. That I stop every day being such a miserable, discontented, thinking of the future person all the time. And that's me. I'm telling you about me. I don't know if that relates to you. At some point in my life, I have to give my wife and my children and the friends in my life the gift that I trust God to be the author and the finisher and the, and the bringing the death and the bringing of life to things. At some point in your life, we've got to be able to do that. At some point in your life, mamas in this room, look, look at those children today and say, that's, what, that's the story God's writing for me right now. And I'm all in. Dads, it's about his answers. And at some point in my life, I believe this, that when I began to do that, and when I began to bow to the goodness and trust in the beauty of who my God is, it's at that point that I begin to experience deep healing in my life. My dad died. Died at 58. He uh, was on a cruise ship in the Bahamas. He passed uh, and had a, a stroke, and it killed him immediately. He was my best friend. I was living in Colorado at the time, and I, I became the Hansel and Gretel. And here's what my idol for my pain had become. My, my idol for my pain to deal with this terrible loss in my mourning was I was going to be, I was going to, first of all, I went through my denial stage, but I was going to be angry at the Lord because God, there's no way that the Lord could have written this into my life. I couldn't accept it. Do you follow me? There's, there's no way. There's no way. There's no way. There's no way. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to attempt to anesthetize my pain, and I'm going to attempt to go out, and I'm going to throw a fishing line in a water for two years to in some way feel good about my heart and my life. It didn't work. And the only time that I've been able to come to the place of healing was the fact that I would look at my holy God and say, you are truly, and I'm not just saying it because it says it in the Bible, you are the author and the perfecter of what you're doing in my life, and I bow to you and I bow to it. And I don't have to understand it. And it's been hard. And guess what? I still struggle with it. Here's the big marriage secret. Big marriage secret for the best marriages. Let me finish by saying this last thing. In Hosea, we won't go there. But listen, chapter 1. The Lord tells Hosea, go take, 
to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. And in this story, Hosea represents the Lord, and Gomer, the prostitute wife, represents Israel. And Hosea goes and marries Gomer. And the Lord said she will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband for then I was better off. And God said something so beautiful in chapter 2. He says this, therefore I am going to allure her. And I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. But Israel continues to fall away and prostitute herself, and so does Gomer. And in Hosea 3, the Lord says to Hosea, Go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as, as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. And so Hosea, what he does is he buys her out of slavery. You know the story. And he takes her back to be his wife. And here's the big secret, my friends. The big secret is this. The best marriages and the deepest relationships with God grow out of a very startling discovery. And the startling discovery is this, that in our sin, we are Gomer. And although we have chased after many lovers, we have not caught them. We may, be, we may continually look for them, but we will not find them. We have been led in the desert, and God has bought us back from slavery, and God has tenderly spoken to us in the person of his son, Jesus, who died for us. And the words that he's speaking to us are this, and hear them sung over you, and let them sink deep down into your heart today. Here are the words that are spoken into you. I love you just like that. And there's nothing you can do to earn it, and there is nothing you can do to unearn it. And I no longer have to go crazy trying to find love. I'm loved. These are the best marriages right here. I'm loved. I'm fully, unreservedly, in spite of anything I might do. I'm free. I'm loved. The energy to love my wife or love my husband completely flows out of this reality that I'm loved. I'm loved. It's settled. I'm loved. I am the beloved of God. And this constitutes the core truth of my existence. And I'll finish by this. Listen to this. It's a great comment. As long as the self is consumed in the struggle to make itself lovely, it cannot love. And that's what I feel one of our problems are in our marriages, is that we're so consumed trying to earn love and get love and run on the rabbit wheel of love that we are trying to make ourselves lovely when we don't even realize what the real truth is, is that we are loved. Is it new to you today or have you heard it a million times? If you've heard it a million, you need to hear it 10 trillion. As long as the self is consumed in the struggle to make itself lovely, it cannot love. First, it must come to the end of its own resources. For the power to love derives purely and solely from the knowledge that one is already loved. Let's pray. God, we are loved. And this is... This is something that we don't, I don't, I don't know if I 
if I want to even trust it. To know that you've loved me with that kind of a fierce love. Lord, thank you for Jesus. I pray for the marriages in our church today. I pray for the husbands as they love their wives, as you love the church. Lord, thank you for loving the church. I pray um, your power and your blessing and your strength over many of the, all of the marriages and those that aren't married yet. I pray, Lord, your strength. I pray, Lord, that we would go on a search to really learn what love has done for us, you being love. Thank you for this time we're able to come and share in a sacrament this morning, Lord. We give you the honor and the glory and the praise. We pray this in your name. Amen.